Hi guys, welcome back to My Steps to Sobriety, my show on YouTube and as a podcast with me, your host, Stefan Neff. Today, I am honored to have Kwan Clover with me. He is a man who thought his life would turn out a little bit different than uh, it ultimately did. But he is a man who fought with adversaries that most of us can only shake their head about. And he has come out a very different man. And he is here to tell his story. And I'm very humbled and, and, and grateful that you came onto my show. So welcome to you, Kwan. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here. Hmm. It, when you were younger, what did you want to be? What was your, your original dream? I was, uh, when I was a young kid, I want to say around six or seven years old, or a little bit younger than that, actually, I saw Jurassic Park, and I thought, okay, I'm going to be a paleontologist. That was my first career aspiration, cool. and then later on in life, I wanted to be president. So those are the first two things I wanted to be. Well, which is not bad, because right now you've got a dinosaur as a president. So <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> okay, who said that? Who said that? I didn't say that. <laughs> um, so paleontology, um, last time I looked very good in films, not so good for the bank account. So you probably not did better with the, with the president. <laughs> exactly. How did school go? Um, in high school, elementary um, school, middle school, the, the primary levels of school, I did great. I actually graduated high school with a 4.0. So that level of schooling was pretty much easy for me. I didn't have to do much studying. Also, in high school, I ran track and played football. So I, we were state champions in track and field. So I would say my high school career um, was very, very easy, for lack of a better word. Brilliant. Brilliant. How did it continue then? Did you decide to go for a study or where Where did life take you? So after high school, I decided to attend the University of Maryland. Um, and I went into school as an economics major. And I actually joined the boxing club for the first semester. Right. And I continued with my athletics because, you know, I prided myself as being athletic, made able to play sports. And um, all through growing up, had repressed a lot of mental health issues, a lot of mental um, different things that caused me to repress any emotion, any negative emotion I felt. But we all know that when you shake up a bottle, at some point, the pressure makes the bottle have to, it has to go somewhere. Mm -hmm. So in about my second semester, at my third semester, so it's my sophomore year, I, this was fall 2013, and I had a mental breakdown where I sort of started rampaging on campus, and it was because I was inebriated. And what I've also noticed, what you don't talk about much, is my first semester, I abused a lot of alcohol, and I would isolate myself and drink alone, and it was not a good mixture. It was vodka and V8 splash, which is awful to even think about. But I sat in my room alone for months and did that. 
Um, I didn't, my schoolwork didn't waver and that first semester I got a 3.75, but at some point those issues, those problems, those feelings I felt that I didn't express came back to with the vengeance. So in that fall of 2013, I had a mental uh, breakdown and again, I was rampaging on campus and I saw a car coming up the road and all I could see was the lights. And I thought to myself, okay, I'm tired. I don't want to deal with this anymore. Let's just put this to an end. So in that instance, I saw the car coming and the lights got bigger. And of course my inhibitions were non-existent because I was drunk at the time. And I started to walk out in front of the car. And just before it got to me, somebody grabbed me from the road. Um, his name is Christopher Steer, saved my life that day. But he was kind of walking with me, making sure I was okay when I had the mental breakdown. And I want to say that was my first suicide attempt. And then I you know, went through the next semester. I got a job that next summer. So this is the summer of 2014. And I got a job with my now mentor, Brent Simpson. And one day, deep into an internship, I went to his house. And now I'd already been experiencing symptoms at home. So like dizziness, inability to speak cohesively, slurred words. And when I drove there, I was driving both hands, my right arm would continue to drift off the wheel. It would get heavier. It felt like I had hand weights. On, on my right arm. So when I got to his office, I started writing, but I couldn't write words on the paper. And then I started talking and it was like, I was forcing words to get out. And he kept telling me to leave, but there was some sense of pride that I held. So I was like, I'm not gonna leave, I'm gonna finish the work. Um, his wife came downstairs, told me I need to leave. And you know, I listened to the wife immediately. And then I went to a doctor and he did some tests and said, you need to go to the hospital. Six hours later, after wedding at the hospital, yeah. Um, they, they, they did a CAT scan, CT scan, and said, you have a lesion in your brain. But they couldn't tell me more because the image was not detailed enough. So they sent me to another hospital and they did an MRI and said, uh, you have a cavernous malformation. And at the time I had no clue what that was. So I was just like, Okay, get it out. And they were like, no, we're going to wait and, and monitor you. And then if it gets worse, come back. So cavernous so malformation. Me. Yeah. So to just to, to break medical terms down, cavernous means there's a, there's a hole somewhere. And malformation means that that typically blood vessels that are supposed to just you know, bring blood in and then go to the capillaries, find a little tubes and then come back out to bring the blood back out well that doesn't work in in such a malformation you've got everything going in and then you've got a big ball of blood vessels there which do their own thing and then blood comes back out the other end and in between you had this kind of of of, of cavity sitting there this emptiness sitting there now if you've got that sitting in your brain that is a bit of a time bomb and that is something that can press on other structures and give you various symptoms. So when you initially uh, described that to me, that very much sounded like a stroke. So the picture of 
not enough blood supply coming to a certain part of the brain and that brain shutting down and ultimately dying and giving you the symptoms, whatever they may be. So that could be the loss of speech. That could be the loss of seeing something. That could be the weakness in your arm or the lack of sensation in that side. So these are all, that is basically what, what we are talking about when we talk stroke and when we talk a, a cavernous malformation. I got to tell you, that's the most apt description of what I've had and like I've heard from anyone. I don't think even the doctors were able to articulate it that well. I always say it was just a bunch of group of, a group of blood vessels that sat on my brainstem and they formed a bubble. That's what I thought it was. But that player describes exactly what it looked like, what it is, and what it, what it did to me. Um, so how wow. old were you? How old were you when that happened? At this time in 2014, I was 20 years old. 20 years, bloody hell. From star athlete and uh, a more or less happy-go-lucky, uh, an intelligent boy who is basically going through life with relative ease. Um, you suddenly had that. And of course, uh, you had this mental breakdown and then you turned up to your, to your peer and, and, or to your, to your mentor and they must have thought you were on drugs. I mean, that is, they must have thought you were under the influence of something. Yeah, because the mental breakdown happened a few months before the, the incident with my mentor. Mm. And then that happened. And I, you know, I didn't learn so maybe last year that what it really was that caused the cavernous malformation to burst was stress. So me repressing those feelings, me trying to do everything and continue to do it no matter what I felt. I actually, um, before a state track meeting in high school, I pulled my hamstring, but I didn't tell anyone. I just continued to run on it. And that was a constant theme of my life, you know, not saying, hey, I'm in pain or hey, this hurts. I just I had to keep going. I had to keep going. I had to keep going. So with that, once they told me I had that, they sent me home for two weeks or for a week and said, if it gets worse, come back. Well, it did get worse. I lost my vision got devil. My balance got worse. So we went back to our hospital and they ended up operating our first brain surgery on August 15th, 2014. And within three days, I was up and out of the hospital, ready to go back to school. And that was my first real mistake. No and shit, Sherlock. <laughs> yeah, that was a huge mistake. And, okay, um, again, for those of you out there, typically when you have got a stroke or when you have got something happening on your brain, you don't just go then back out for a run. That happens in crappy, cheesy films. In reality, your brain needs time to calm down and heal. And that doesn't happen in two days or three days. That happens over weeks and, in fact, months. Of course, you don't have to stay home for three months, but you certainly don't go straight back into university. But here you are. You're a fighter. You're, you're a man who defines himself. You're young. You're, you're going out there. You want to have this life. You know, crap it by the balls. And I can see, I, I probably would have done the same. I probably have done the same um, under not as dramatic circumstances. Yeah, and at 20, I just felt invincible. I felt, you know, this was a pause, an unnecessary pause in my life. 
So I wanted to get back to school. I had joined the fraternity. So I wanted to get back to campus. Hmm. And, um, you know, within a month, I had gone to a number of parties, different events. And within a month, I actually did have a stroke. When I went back, uh, when I went, I went, it was one day, September 17th, 2014. I was, I had a headache all day for about 13 hours. Um, I didn't know what it was. I just thought it was an incessant headache. And I tried, I was supposed to go to DC for some business from a mentor. And I never mentioned DC because I, that night I couldn't go to sleep. My head was just ringing and I went to, I felt like I had to throw up. When I went to throw up, it was just water that came out. Then my vision got foggy and I tried to get into the bed and my right arm went limp and my right leg went limp. And I turned over, I called the ambulance and I called my mom and I said, I think I'm having a stroke. I never lost consciousness, but that was the first time where I could truly classify it as a stroke, where like a lost function and my face started drooping and stuff like that. It was scary because I was by myself. Um, but I, again, I never lost consciousness. So after that, I had to go into rehab, which was an interesting experience. Being that I had been used to being able-bodied and able to do for myself, having to relearn how to hold a pencil, having to relearn how to use my hand, having to relearn how to walk was very humbling and very frustrating at the same time. Because, oh, again, I hadn't even turned 21 yet. So I was, I had uh, another thing I always find strange is that early in my life, in my teenage years, I had shingles. So I was, I started to wonder if I was aging backwards. Like I had pe- the things that happened to people that were older than I was. <laughs> Good point. Good point. You're forgiven to think that way. <laughs> and then, uh, you know, one thing I had a very humbling experience, a very experience that changed my perspective. One of the things we do in rehab is towards the end of your stay, you go out, see if you can walk around in the world. And one of the tasks is to handle money. And there was a, a guy that was in my group. It was a lady in front of me in line. And then it was me. And he was, you know, he, I think he had had a stroke as well. So he was having difficulty handling the money. And the lady in front of me, completely able-bodied, not really affected by anything. She started huffing and puffing. I can tell she was getting frustrated and she was getting impatient. And I was just like, wow, you don't even know what he's been through, what his story is or where he's come from. Yet, you know, you're treating it as if he's in your way or he's a burden or he's causing you undue stress. And then I thought, well, is that the way I thought about people who have had the same condition? Is that the way I think you would like that before in my life? And then I had to kind of stop and just analyze my own behavior before I started judging her. And that was a, the biggest positive out of that whole rehab experience, just the mm. perspective shift from not seeing people that are often considered the other and seeing them for what they are. And it's just mm. people. You don't ever really know anyone's story. And that is such a powerful thing, isn't it? That is the same when a doctor becomes a patient, uh, when when you suddenly change roles and get an insight that is so valuable, often painful, uh, certainly 
increasing your humility tremendously. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's And you don't need to be sick for that. Uh, many years ago, I saw a reportage where they took a fit and healthy reporter and turned him into an old man. So what they did is they basically gave him glasses that impaired his vision. They put earmuffs on to impair his hearing. They put weights onto his arms in such a degree as it would be to, to actually go there. They limited his movement to simulate just a little bit of shoulder pain, etc. And then they sent him shopping. And it was the most intriguing experience for him struggling to reach up there for the yogurt and, 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 and not hearing that other people are behind him, not seeing that, that he is actually standing in someone's way, things like that. It was a very brutal and, and good social experiment that was, that was done there. And that just showed the effect of aging, leave then alone the fact that half of your brain does no longer work so well. And that's not half of your brain. A stroke can be tiny, but if it is in the right place, it can affect so much. Imagine it like a bottleneck of information running through. Well, if you just hit that bottleneck, well, then all the information that run through there don't get through. And so, therefore, it is, um, it, it is a bloody scary thing. How long were you in rehab? I was in rehab for about a month. Yeah. And um, I think, you know, a lot of my functions came back over time. I was operating um, before the surgery and the stroke about 100%, uh, guess about 100%. And then after rehab, about 85 to 90%. Right. Which is beautiful. Um, and it's not necessarily a given, but often enough, the brain can learn new ways of adapting it's called neuroplasticity and it's a beautiful beautiful adaptive mechanism where your brain luckily works around problems and tries to achieve and tries to help you by growing new nerve endings growing new connections etc so to a certain degree you were very much scared and you would have been very much, oh my God. But then to actually, for it to slowly come back, there must have been quite a glimmer of hope there. Yeah, and I think for me, I was a lot more motivated for that first time because I wanted to have it back so bad and I didn't know any other way to live. So without that, I just felt like less of a man, uh, not a whole person. Mm. It was really uh, defeating. It was really humbling. But, uh, you know, I made the best of it. And I you made use of my hand, my leg as much as possible. Um, so I was able to gain a lot of it back. Um, in the next year, so I finished school in spring. I went back in spring semester of 2015, completed school. And then that summer, I fell into a really, really, really deep depression just because I had adjusted or acclimated to where I was physically. But it wasn't, I was so desperate to get back to where I was before. And often when you find yourself living in the past, you're missing the present and you fall into depression. And that's exactly what happened to me for that almost that entire summer. I slept on my couch and just watched Sons of Anarchy um, all the way through the end. 
And uh, it was a strange occurrence, but I had a friend, a brother of mine, and I often he just kind of it was it was very angelic almost. I had forgotten to lock my front door, and he just walked in, and I was in the the, the throes of my depression, just laying on the couch. And I don't know if you're drunk or what, but he just came and hugged me and said, "You're gonna be fine." And then he left, and I was just like. What was that about? But then the next day I got the email about an internship. Things started to turn around and it became more positive. So I think that was a blessing in disguise. And then uh, I, I, I had gotten normal checkups with my surgeon, Dr. Jonathan Sherman at GW Hospital. And he normally, hey, I just heard images. Everything was fine, but there's something there. Everything was fine. There's something that he said this every appointment. And then this appointment, he came in. It was in September of 2015. And he sat down and put his head down. And I can tell something was different. And he kind of looked around. He was like, I'm, I'm not sure I'd say this. But uh, I looked at your imaging. And it looks like the mass has come back. And it's grown bigger and faster. And immediately my mom started crying. My dad just held her. And then we were, they were just kind of looking around the room. You know, I don't know, imagine being a parent, having to listen to something that you can have no direct effect on. And then an instant, I don't know if I got an inner superhero or was it courage? Was it just impatience? But I said, okay, let's sign up for the surgery. Like now. And Everybody in the room looked at me like, you don't want to think about it? You, you sure you want to do this? And I was like, yes, sign me up now. I want to get this done. And we signed up for the surgery October 1st. But in that time between September and October, when I was waiting to have the surgery, I had resolved within myself that I'd rather not wake up after the surgery. I had told myself that I was okay was not waking up. And I went into surgery and I had just, I said, it told myself I was at peace. So if I didn't wake up, if this was the end, I'm fine with that. And um, they told me they was gonna have to put in a spinal tap. I didn't pay much attention to whatever they said before the surgery, cause I was just like, I'm gonna be fine. I'm not gonna wake up. This is all gonna be over, whatever. So they put me under, I had the most interesting dream of my life. In the dream, I'm standing up, fully able-bodied. I can see the clothes I'm wearing, like a hoodie and a jean jacket, and I'm throwing punches. And I'm like, wait, everything works. Like, this must be heaven. And as I'm throwing punches, it starts to rain. And the rain is black. But it, I stick my hand up, but the rain doesn't touch me. And then I start to float up. And then I feel warm. And then I start to lose my human visage. And then I can feel myself watching this happen, but also experiencing it from two different perspectives. And one of the perspectives from watching it happen on Painter's canvas. And from that vantage point, I see myself floating up to the top. And as soon as I get to the top of the canvas, I stop. And it's like a hand that pushes me down and everything happens in reverse. And it says, the voice in the 
dream or whatever you want to call it says not done yet or something like that. And then I wake up and I'm back in the hospital. I'm like, oh my God, here we go again. So I completely forgot about what they had given me, the spinal tap. And the doctor said, you have to keep that in for five days. I pride myself on being able to endure pain, but on a scale from one to 10, that was probably a 37. I, because, you know, and I'm sure you know, your brain doesn't normally touch your skull. So when they were draining the fluid, it was knocking against my skull whenever I moved. So it was incredibly painful and it was, the pain was shooting everywhere in my body. Um, and this is when they gave me fentanyl. And I didn't know what it was. I never heard of it. And I've done some, a little bit of research afterwards. And I've been told and I've read that they call it uh, heroin on steroids. And they actually use heroin to cut fentanyl. So I was giving, I was given doses of fentanyl every hour on the hour. And I can feel myself becoming like a fiend, like, when I would see a doctor walk past my room, I'd stick my arm out and be like, please, please, please. And it would alleviate the pain and put me into such a blissful state. But at the same time, I was crushing my chest cavity and I couldn't breathe. So they took me off of the fentanyl and started me on Percocet. It did put the pain, but it didn't have the euphoric after effects, as you will. And after about five days, and then they took this minor tap out. Um, I started walking around and then I was back home recovering and I didn't go back to school this time like I normally did. So I learned a little bit from my first encounter with all this. Um, but that fentanyl and Percocet use were uh, definitely a precursor to what I would get myself involved into in, in the next year. It was interesting. Um, and when I left that hospital, they prescribed me Ferocet, which is like a, a, in the same family as Percocet, but it's like pain medication and caffeine. And after I was weaned off that, the last day I experienced my first withdrawal and it felt like my body had gotten hit by a truck. And I woke up and just like, I must've been in the fight because there's no way there's this much pain and my body and I haven't been doing anything. So that was that part. And I went back to school, this is spring 16. So 2016 spring semester, I was looking for a pen in my desk. I, you know, studying for classes, looking for a pen. And in my drawer, there was a prescription for Percocet. And I was just like, oh, I should probably fill this prescription just in case. Never know. And then I started to abuse it. So I would carry that pill bottle around to parties, to class, to wherever I was. Oh, just pop a pill here and there. Not really because of pain, but I felt it was more like escapism. And I under I started to understand that the when you're not in real pain and you just take pain pills like narcotics. They do something not only to your body, but your mind, your emotional state. 
And then I got into cough syrup and I was mixing the two with marijuana and alcohol and just spiral out of control. Um, but I wouldn't say from probably about January, February to into the summer or into the end of semester, so around April, uh, March, sometime in there, I was able to decide within myself and be strong enough to just kick it cold turkey. So I dumped the pills, the cough syrup, all in one swell punch. But you know, when you stop doing that, all the pain that you were pushing away comes slamming back. And there is nothing that can prepare you for that. Um, and on and sometime in April, I wrote a letter or a message to my the brothers I had in my fraternity, and I decided just to end it. Just I'm done, tired, and uh, within about ten minutes, one of them were kicking down the door, and they were rallying around me. So again, they were there to kind of stop me from doing that, but it was. Like when you numb yourself to that extent, at some point, the pain is going to have to be, you're going to have to experience. You can push it off as long as you want, but at some point that pain is going to come back with a vengeance. So, um, you know, I was able to make it through that and it was, it taught me a lot about myself and how far I had fallen from the image I held for myself and how I let situations that weren't my fault manifest into what I perceived as my own fault and my own guilt. And that guilt drove me to do the things I did. And I hope I'm not talking too much because this story kind of goes on and on. Um, but yeah, that, 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 that was another experience where I really had to reevaluate a lot of things. And uh, my seventh grace was in that fall semester of 2016. I found a woman and she encouraged me to get into therapy. She encouraged me to address some of the issues. And for, from then on until I graduated, it was a pretty smooth sailing. Uh, no real questions, no real apprehensions. I took, ended up taking a lot of credits my last semester. Um, but I had the job, I had the girl, had a car in my own place. So in 2017, I was riding high again. And I felt like, all right, things are finally starting to turn around. And then I was in a gym one day. And I was lifting weights. And I was on the squat rack, you know, doing my reps. One, two. And then I went down for one, and I got dizzy. And then lasting for about a second, I stopped. I was like, oh, need to drink my water. Start doing, you know, more exercise. And I got dizzy again. And I was like, okay, something is a little off. So fast forward a little bit. I, my, my girlfriend at the time started noticing that I was having headaches and getting up at odd hours of the night. So I scheduled a doctor's appointment. We ended up going down there. The doctor was not there. Um, they tried to leave me a message, but it never came through. So I went back to my mentor's office. Uh, we were doing something, broadcasting. And then the headache started. And I remember leaning on my desk like this. And he just looked at me and said, do you need to go to the hospital? And for five minutes, I sat there. I didn't say anything. 
And then I finally say yes. And then go off to the races again, back to the hospital, basically a repeat of the first surgery. Hey, we're not going to do much. We're just going to monitor. And this time, the monitoring was a bad idea because not only, you know, did the symptoms get worse, there were new symptoms. So now there's no feeling on this side of my face. I can't control the blinking of this eyelid. Mm. My, this side of my mouth is drooping. The inside of my mouth, I can't feel it on the left side. There's a ringing in my ear. There's just a lot of this complete, almost, it's a lot of numbness on the right side of my body. And these symptoms develop over time. My balance got worse. I wasn't able to write. It was just, I felt like I was deteriorating. And right in front of my eyes. My vision got worse. I feel like I lost about 60% of my vision, my left eye. Um, I was wearing the eye patch. So my first surgeon recommended someone up in Rutgers University to do the next procedure. He said, we tried two procedures, one through the back, the side, I believe, one through intranasal between my carotid arteries. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they weren't enough. So I think we're going to have to get somebody else to the specialist to really get at this thing. Send us up to Rutgers University and feel free to stop me anytime because I can talk mm -hmm. forever. No, 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 no. Keep going, man. That is um, this is your story, and this is this is such an intriguing story. Keep going. So we went up to Rutgers. Uh, the doctor came in, James, Dr. James K. Lou, very calm, collected. He did a few neurological tests. He was like, um, yeah. So I do this procedure pretty often. Um, let's get a date on the calendar. So we set our date and everything was good. In my head, I was like, this is the guy that's going to save my life. Well, now, the thing about the American insurance system, we went out to the financial desk and they, my dad was looking at the paperwork. And it comes out, they didn't, my insurance wouldn't cover the procedure or the doctor. So we would have had to pay out of pocket. And we went, Saw advice from other doctors. Um, one of the doctors we went to see, he kind of looked at me as if he didn't want to touch the case, but he did say something disturbing to my parents and me. Um, he just said it very plainly, almost callously. If you don't get this procedure done in three to six months, you're going to be dead. Mm. And I just I didn't really have a reaction to it. I just kind of, all right, so what are you going to do about it? And he said, uh, he sent me to radiology. And I didn't feel that was going to be adequate enough. I didn't want to go through with radiology. Um, but here's where the, the uh, I'll call it favor, where that ticked in. My first surgeon, Dr. Sherman, the, the doctor I wanted to see, and Dr. James K. Lou all met up at the same medical conference and they all conferred instead Dr. James Lou was the guy for the surgery. So we went ahead and went him for the surgery. Also during this time, I started a GoFundMe campaign to raise money for the surgery. And um, within the first two days, I raised $48,000. Wow. And the first seven days, I raised $75,000 and I ended up raising close to 90 at the end of the campaign. Wow. And um, yeah, 
I was really surprised about that. And, um, you know, I had the procedure. And I just, you know, there's there's always another hurdle, another valid, another mountain to cross after the procedure, hallucinating, uh, fevers, infections, blood clots. And I was in Rutgers. The procedure was 15 hours. But I was in Rutgers for a month just trying to get everything under control. Uh, that time, mentally, I was totally out of it. It's just really difficult time for me. And I, it really changed who I was. The man that went up to Rutgers that knew I was just going to call it just fine did not return until, I want to say, Monday of this year, like this week, Monday. Um, I, I literally wrote my journal on August 22nd, 2020. I feel whole. But that man got left in New Jersey back in 2017. So came back down to D.C. for rehab. I was there for like a month, same procedure. Um, again, another humbling experience to not be able to really take care of yourself. And, you know, I have a sister. She's 14 years younger. She was six when everything started. So, you know, as a youngest, you normally you get all the attention. And she was kind of in my shadow because everyone was rallying around me and there was nothing. You know, it wasn't her fault. It wasn't my fault. It's just a thing. But I, I felt guilty about that. And, um, you know, after rehab, I got released and I fell into another depression because I, I, I like to call it civilian PTSD. When you are constantly fighting and then there is no longer a fight, what is your purpose? What do you do with that energy? Like, how do you serve anyone if you're, how do you serve yourself if you're a fighter that no longer fights? You know, you, people fight dogs and when they can't fight anymore, they get put down. That's a terrible thing to do, but that's kind of felt. I was like, well, I don't fight anymore, so what is my purpose? And for a while, I had to dig deep within myself to figure out, you know, what I was going to do. And I had a girlfriend at the time, so trying to manage a relationship and my recovery and rehab and outpatient. It was just a really daunting task ahead of me. But in January, uh, that was all in 2017. So in January of 2018, I decided to just hop on Facebook and start talking. I felt like expressing and sharing my story was the only solution I had for myself. Mm -hmm. And um, I got on and I was just like, hey, guys, this is me after surgery. Um, this is what I went through. I'm glad you have been in my corner. And from then on, I made that a weekly thing. Um, <laughs> It's still on my first video, still on YouTube. And that was the turn for me. And, uh, you know, I went back to work with my mentor and I had the school behind me when I went back to campus. Um, and that's when I like to say the darkest night always comes for the brightest morning. And I had gotten past then my darkest morning, darkest night. And my morning was just starting to, my dawn was coming. And um, that's kind of where that part of my journey ends. And that's kind of where the book ends. 
but that, you know, that whole journey involved a lot of spiritual, mental, and emotional stress, um, physical pain. Mm. But the whole story arc from start to finish was a spiritual journey. And I've developed a whole new mindset and a whole new perspective on how fragile life can really be. And that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> well, first of all, wow. Thank you so much for sharing that story and for highlighting it, because these are stories that are actually becoming normal for people in their later stages of life when they do have strokes and they do have heart attacks, when they do have a hip joint replacement because they have broken their hip things like that when but we take that all for granted uh we take that oh yeah, yeah these are old people they you know it is old people here you are having a very similar experience at a very young age and there are many 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 young people out there who have got similar experiences not necessarily with a stroke but suddenly an autoimmune disease like rheumatoid arthritis hits them or suddenly they develop diabetes or 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 that is it is it medicine is is weird and the human body is weird because it can at any one moment it can decide to go completely pear-shaped and sideways and you just never know we doctors see it every day but the amount of people that are out there who are so blissfully ignorant and who are completely taking everything for granted and are so, oh yeah, of course I walk to the gym and do a nice workout. workout. Yeah, hmm, you do that today. Tomorrow is not guaranteed. And you had to learn that the hard way. Exactly. Did you, where did you regain the strength? How did you, your parents deal with that? Were you guys a close-knit family to start off with? Yeah, um, definitely a two-parent household. My grandma was heavily involved, my dad's mom. And um, for me, it took a lot longer to really deal with it because that story ends in 2018. But I want to say I didn't get real clarity until the end of 2019. And again, the complete journey was complete on August 22nd of this year. Mm -hmm. And the second book is going to be a part about 2018 to mm -hmm. 2020. But, you know, in the, you know, that part, my family, it just, it used to tear me up inside because I felt like I was the reason they had me worried. I was the reason for the financial burden. You know, I was the reason that they had to rally around me instead of being, so in the hospital, I think that was a challenge because I was repressing again feelings of sadness, of grief, of loss, because I couldn't crumble in front of people. Because if I crumbled, they were sure to crumble. And I had to be strong for other people. Mm. Um, and I wasn't concerned with my own feelings. And me adopting this, this strength, this power, whatever, uh, caused a lot of internal bleeding on a spiritual level, if you will on an emotional, mental level. Um, but I that's, had... That's a beautiful way of putting like it. That was all I can do. Yeah, internal bleeding on an emotional level. I love that description because that's that's exactly it. 
And in all fairness, I mean, in your, uh, in your first book up to 2018, you were rolling with the punches. You were essentially, uh, life was happening to you. And you had to like it or lump it and had to overcome the obstacles. So that is one thing. But then once the dust settled, you are left with the trauma. You are left with the emotions. You are left with all that. And then the real hard work begins. Then the real recovery begins. And I'm not surprised to hear that it took you the better part of two years to to reframe things, to make sense out of things, to learn from these things. That is, uh, it is, yeah, very, very, I don't want to say normal, but I have heard the same story again and again. When I, when I stopped drinking, I went for a rehab and the first two years were quite empty. I was actually an empty vessel, an empty shell. And I only then in, in the latter part of the first year and then in the second year start to develop that clarity. And I love the description you used. You're suddenly things become clear to you and your mind becomes clear to a point that nowadays it, it runs like a, like a surgical knife. It is razor sharp. And I love that that feeling, but that was not there for a long time. And your brain has is only just coming around now after all that emotional damage and the literal damage. After all, your brain needed to heal, and that was months uh, before it could actually do that and before the scarring had settled down. And then you had to to learn again, both on an emotional level and on a physical level. What exactly. a journey. What a journey. What kind of support were you able to tap into as far as your emotions were concerned? I were definitely there... got into therapy, mm -hmm. um, talking to a therapist and an unbiased party that it had no real affiliation with my story was Good. a huge, huge help. Mm -hmm. um, And then I was, I did a lot of introspection. So the first book comes out in September 14th this year. And that again, details the story I just told you. The second book that I'm starting to put together now covers the, the real recovery, if you will. And I went into a lot of meditation practices, breathing practices, a lot of traveling, just exploring a world that I never really got to see and, mm. and really analyzing myself on a, just a mental, emotional, spiritual level, a lot of introspection, a lot of mm. seeing the world with my new eyes. And that's <laughs> where it, it, it just showed me, you know, the guilt about everything I still carried until about the end of 2019. And then I looked at one day in my bedroom. And again, August. I don't know what it is about August, but I remember clearly <laughs> it was August of 2019. I looked up in bed, life all, and I was just like, you know, I got to tell you, none of this is my fault. And then instant, the guilt that I carried for all those years and all the surgeries evaporated. 
but there was still something that I didn't understand that still burdened me. And it's a term that I just recently came became familiar with. It's called being passively suicidal. So in that, especially it's like, it means you're not actively trying to kill your, end your life or kill yourself or however you want to phrase it. But if you were to get hit by a car or something happens or you die, it wouldn't really matter to you. And that, that stuck with me until so, from sophomore year of college back in 2014 still this past Monday, August 22nd, 2020. And I wrote in my journal, again, I feel whole. And that's why I said the man that went for the surgery in 2017 mm. finally returned. And I don't feel the the burden or the pressure or the stress or the sadness. I mean, as a human, you often have those dark moments, but Mm. right now I don't feel burdened by anything. I feel like I'm moving towards a purpose. Mm. I feel like putting my story down on paper and actually putting it out as a book to share with the world and giving other people inspiration is my calling. And I'm, everything for me, starts with the basis of gratitude. When I get up in the morning and open my eyes, my feet touch the ground, I'm thankful. Because there is a theory out there, I don't know if it's accurately, this is mathematically accurate, but there's a 400 trillion to one chance that you are born a human. And the fact that I'm alive and still breathing, everything else after that is the bonus. And that's how I really feel about the world, despite the addiction, despite the crushing medical debt. That's something I didn't even mention in the story I was telling you. When I calculated all the, the, the medical expenses, it was $1.2 million. And I had no clue how I was going to get out of it. But insurance kicked in because all the doctors conferred and said Dr. Lou was the best guy for the job. But, you know, my grandma called it favor. And she says, favor ain't fair. It's just favor. And, you know, I just feel like what I really struggled with, and this is what brought everything to a head for me, My, I was always asking myself, why me? And why this happened to me? And why right now? And what? why did this? Why? And then there was like this little voice that got louder and louder each year, louder and louder. And at first it was like a whisper. And then this year, it spoke where I could hear it clearly. Why not you? Or if not you, then who? And that caused me to think about something someone said to me. When I when I spoke on stage one time, and I was completely distraught, and I felt like the speech was a failure, and I didn't speak well, but there were people coming up to me after, like, that was so great, I couldn't. Now, I'm really inspired. I like your quotes. And in my head, I'm like, you're lying to me. You know, Mm. I heard myself talk. That was awful. And he said, the problem you're having is that when you're speaking, you're thinking about what you you are getting out of the speech. The reason you speak is for others to gain something. And that was the problem I was struggling with with my own journey. Mm. My journey was not for me. It was for me to gain a story to share with others so they can overcome whatever adversity they're facing. And that's when the clarity really struck. 
And now I'm here talking to you. <laughs> and vice versa, me to you. Why do we spend our time? Because we want to make a difference. We want our stories to be heard so that others don't have the same negative emotions, the same brutal emotions that that we both have gone through. So no, it is it is let's make our voices heard. Let's actually scream it from the rooftops. Let's write it in a book and let's share it so that others can gain the hope. Because guys out there, there is hope. I mean, for crying out loud, my story pales into insignificance compared with Quan. So you have gone, uh, you have gone through hell, but you kept going. And now you are here and it took you 2014 till now, um, six years. Uh, it's a hell of a long time. But here you are, and you're redeveloping yourself and redefining yourself, no longer as the victim, why me, why me, but rather as an influencer, as someone who has got a voice and who has made sense out of his suffering, who has now gone out there and laid a plan down, and you're working towards towards your goals. I mean... What better journey could there be? What better transformation is waiting for you? Man, wow. Okay, I can't wait to read your book. Uh, and and uh, what is the title? Have you chosen the title? Yes. So the book is called Favor, How Stroke, Struggle, and Surgery Helped Me Find My Life's Purpose. Perfect. Perfectly done. Yeah. Man, I so wish it to you that this will be an absolute fantastic seller um, and that actually a few a few dollars come back in. But more importantly, yes, while that will help with with your your financial situation, after all, you need to eat something and have some butter, right? right? Uh, exactly. But at the same token, though, you will give hope to so many who will have struggled with their own negative emotions in response to a trauma which turned them from a very able-bodied person to now someone that they don't want to accept, that they don't like, that they hate to see in the mirror, that makes them cry every day because they are stuck in that trauma. And hopefully your, your story will resonate with them and say, wow, if he can do it, then... Maybe there's hope for me. And that's the powerful, powerful message. Wow. I'm so pleased that you came onto my show. I'm so pleased that you that you were humble enough to share your story because it certainly made me think. And it is you have got a voice and you need to speak up because you are helping. You're helping others in a tremendous way. I mean, I'm just honored to be able to be here and share my soul with you. And mm. hopefully your listeners and anybody out there hears this, gain some inspiration. If I can help save one life, if I can help change one perspective, I think my purpose has been served. So like you said, yell it from the Raptors. Let's let the whole world know that there is, in fact, hope. Indeed, right. What a better way to, to finish this interview Guys, look after yourself and don't give up hope. 
uh, honestly, that is this life is too beautiful. Look after yourself. Bye. Dreamer.